Before we get started, a message from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies wholeheartedly believes that if you get the right people, the results will follow. They set themselves apart with a forward-thinking culture that empowers their people and fosters loyal partnerships. They are also proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of this podcast. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, my friends, welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I feel like I begin almost every episode by letting you know that you are in for a treat. But I'm going to begin this one by letting you, you know you are in for a treat. This is going to be an awesome one. His name is Greg Holder. He serves as lead pastor at The Crossing. It's a church in St. Louis that reaches nearly 10,000 individuals online and in person every week. He's also just released a book that we'll be discussing today. It's titled Never Settle. I think that one is going to play in many of our worlds right now, this idea of never settling. It reminds us that while we don't consciously choose a less than life, it often happens. Yeah. Little by little, we accept a life that is less than satisfying, less than interesting, less than helpful, and less than hopeful in particular right now. Before we know it, our faith, our relationships, our life, they become lukewarm, they become apathetic, they become bland, and they begin to move toward death. But we're called to more. So let's talk about more with a great pastor and a friend. His name is Greg Holder. And Greg, before I uh, bring you onto stage, before I bring you onto the Live Inspired podcast, my first introduction to you was through a friend named Mr. Nixon. Mr. Nixon had heard that John O'Leary wanted to improve his marriage. And so he sent me a couple CDs on the Song of Songs. Okay. I was not very familiar with. And I listened to a guy I'd never heard of before named Pastor Greg. You unpacked the Song of Songs in such a way that it changed not only the way I felt about that book, the way I felt about my marriage, the way I felt about marriage, but also the way I felt about the Bible. Mm. So, Greg, uh, thank you for your teachings. Thank mm. you for your work. And thank you for your life. And thank you for your yes to be on our show today. Oh, my goodness. It's a privilege, John. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. So, my friends, that is Greg Holder. Greg, for those who uh, somehow missed my introduction of you or they've never yet snuck into the back of one of your church services, Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing today. Okay, so first of all, how about this for a disclaimer? Anytime somebody hears the word pastor, they, their eyes almost immediately roll into the back of their head. So just hang on, don't, no eye rolls, please. I, I got called into this thing out of the marketplace uh, and really never thought I would be a pastor and uh, really just felt a longing, a desire to make a difference. Uh, and our church, to be honest with you, is for people who have maybe never been to church before, who have maybe never, uh, maybe they've never opened a Bible before, and they have those legitimate questions that nobody thought they could ask in church. And so that's really how we uh, began this thing, uh, golly, 20 years ago now, 20 plus years ago. And it, it uh, God has blessed us throughout. And I will tell you, I don't deserve a lick of it. Uh, he loves me enough to surround me with really smart people, and it's fun doing this and collaborating with others. So we'll talk about the work. We'll talk about the others. We'll talk about the impact. But I always like the origin story. 
Yeah. One of the teachings, when you unpack the Bible, the, the history of it, and, and you brought it forward, it's, it was another way that made what was past tense present mm-hmm. for me. That's good. And, and Greg, I That's think for, for us, our listeners, for us to hear a little bit of your story, what led you to the cross and what led you yeah. to your belief. So yeah. wh- where were you born and what was life like for Greg? Okay, this is, I'll give this to you quick. Um, I was actually born in Southern Illinois, the other side of the St. Louis metropolitan area uh, in a little town called Troy, Illinois. Uh, my dad was a professor at SIU Edwardsville uh, here in the Midwest, um, a psychologist. We moved over to, to uh, the St. Louis area when I was in middle school. Um, long story short, my mom and dad grew up taking me to church and somebody somewhere said to my mom at the end of a church service, and she meant well, she really did, but she said, oh, he's gonna be a preacher someday. And I, John, I'm not kidding you, this is the truth. I remember rolling my eyes. I remember going like that. I remember my mom, dear Jackie, giving me a little smack upside the head because we were at church and I was being disrespectful to Mrs. So-and-so. But I, I tell you that story to say this, I thought that church was broken. I thought that it, nobody gave God the memo. We were all still supposed to be showing up, but none of this was relevant to me or my friends. And that's where that reaction came from. So for the longest time, I kind of had a distance between me and, and what I would call the church. Uh, I don't have any big sorted, uh, you know, stories of a really, you know, yeah. uh, a hard left detour where, you know, Greg was cooking drugs in the basement or anything like that. I don't have that story. But I did, I did pull away from, from what I think God wanted me to do. So you fast forward many, many years. I, I get an undergraduate degree in psychology, a graduate degree in counseling. I'm working uh, out in the marketplace. And um, I, I get called uh, by a friend of mine to help start uh, on the music end of a, of a really tiny church that had just a few handfuls of people in it. Uh, My wife and I used to do a lot of studio work, recording work, vocal work, singing. And so here locally, this guy said, hey, will you come help us do the music and and lead the worship? That's where it started. Along the way, I just, you know, we talk about this in the church business, but uh, I feel like there's a call on my life. I think God made me for something. And maybe we can talk about that for each of us. But yeah, so along the way, he called me out of the marketplace into actually leading this teeny tiny small church and uh my wife and i have uh been at it ever since and just so grateful and we get to do this with friends who are actually they were with us at the beginning and they're still with us now so that's a blessing and uh continue to be surprised i love i love the title i know we're talking about it my book but i love the title of your latest book because i i am in awe all the time of what god has just done for me and i'm trying to pay attention to that it's funny you say that. I, in preparing for today, outside of being your friend and follower, I listened to a bunch of the podcasts that you've had on before this one. Yeah. You frequently use the expression in awe. In yeah. awe. And uh, you will not be hearing from my attorneys. I think you are <laughs> welcome to use that as frequently as you'd like. Tell me, though, what, 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 does, what do those words mean to you, Greg? Like yeah. when, when you say, John, yeah. God, I'm just so in awe. Yeah. What does yeah. that mean for you? Okay, that's that's such a profound question. We could spend a lot of time on it. I will say this. It starts with an awareness. It starts with an awareness of who I am and, um, and what is happening around me. And I start to see these blessings and I start to see these, these opportunities. And I believe, again, 
I'm a pastor, so you would expect me to talk about God, but I do think that I see God connecting these dots of, hey, you're a part of this bigger story, man, and I want you to be in it. And that's really humbling to me when I think, oh, wow, so there is more to this than all of this, and there's someone who created all of this, and yet he knows me by name and is saying, I, I have a plan for you. Oh, and look, this is how it connects. That to me is a moment when I am filled with awe, just like, wow, really? Really? And I, and I have to confess to you, and, and you make such a good point about this in your book, is that, you know, that slips away. That, that, that leaks out really fast in today's world. Um, so there's an intentionality to it where I really want to pay attention to what is it that God is doing around me? What are the gifts around me? Um, I think that's my first crack at the answer. So as we pivot a little bit deeper into the answer, why do you think in the world in which we all live right now, we are open to anybody's ideas around yoga or working out or eating only lettuce or drinking only water. We're open to any idea, anything you want to bring forward to me. I'm, I'm, for trying it a couple times, except faith. That is just a bridge that is too far and a wall that is too high. Why does faith and religion in particular seem to repulse as soon? In fact, Greg, let me back up and say, when we serve clients in the secular world, I always serve them up with with papers, give them uh, 15 questions so I can learn a little bit more about their organization. Question number 13 is what topics would you like John O'Leary to avoid? So you right. put him in front of the audience. What topics do you want him to shy away from? There are always two responses. Politics. Of course. And number two, re- religion. Yeah. Why is religion so repulsive in the days that you and I find ourselves leading in? Well, okay. Another really loaded question. But I would say uh, part of that is because of the, the failures of some of us in the way that we're communicating and exhibiting our faith. If I'm going to be really blunt and honest with you. Um, I don't think we've always communicated the kind of hope that I find in my faith and the kind of significance and meaning that I find in my faith. And I'm afraid, and I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here. I'm just trying to answer the question in a general way. I'm afraid that the impression is that religion, as it were, as you, as you said, is really about do's and don'ts and lists of shoulds and shouldn'ts. And and uh, and there's a burden and there's a weight to that. Now, I want to be real clear and say that I do think there are boundaries and I do think there are guardrails and bumpers that that that, that we need to live inside of to have a, a full and a meaningful life. But my faith is more about, about significance and, you know, the release of a burden than it is a burden that's being placed on me. And so I understand in a world where uh, so very much just seems to overwhelm us, um, the, the, the last thing we want are more shoulds and oughtas and, 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 and the burden of shame and the burden of, of what I would just call a, a never ending sense of I, I'm not doing enough. Well, okay, that's welcome to the club. But one of my favorite words is grace. And when God says, listen, you can't do this on your own. Let me help. That's where the relief comes from for me. I don't know, John, if we've always, and I'm speaking collectively, I don't know that we've always, as those who have this faith, I don't know that we've communicated that very well. You know, what you're really talking about, ultimately, I think, and we we touch on this in the book, is a worldview. Um, there's a, there's a chapter in the book, and I, I, it's called uh, 
you know, living in a VUCA world, V-U-C-A. And um, I don't have it in the book, but honestly, I'd never heard that acronym before. Um, I was at a meeting of a global organization and one of the guys up there, because they do work with the UN and all of these other, you know, organizations, he sort of speaks uh, in acronyms. And, uh, you know, so it's like USAID, uh, NPO, NGO, EIEIO. I couldn't keep up with him. And he drops this thing in there where he says, you know, of course, we all realize that we live in a VUCA world. And I looked around the room and everybody else acted like they knew what that was. Have you ever just like been in a situation where it's like, I kind of got to pretend that I know what this means. My uh, life's they're great, but yes. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's Thursday afternoon for me. So, <laughs> so I'm just kind of nodding and, and looking at the other guys kind of in my corner of the table. It's like, hmm, yes, of course. And uh, like five minutes later, the guy next to me, just big old Texan just leans over in a loud whisper and he goes, Hey, do you have any idea what a VUCA world is? And I looked at him and I said, well, yes, I do. It stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Now, how did I know that? Cause I had Googled it on my phone like two minutes earlier. I didn't know what that was. It's a, it's a term that was used by uh, complexity scientists. Really, I think after the cold war, and so if you start to think about a world that's volatile, a world that is uncertain, that is complex, that is ambiguous, I mean, take your pick of the four, we're in it. That's right. And what I think that, what I'm finding is that people are longing for a worldview that is big enough and a story that is big enough to give you a way out of that while acknowledging that you're in it. Hmm. See, for me, one of the things that I think sometimes that, that, that we don't do is we don't, we don't, we don't really see the whole picture. And the whole picture is the world that you and I are in. And so uh, I need to be honest about the struggles that I'm facing and the challenges that I'm facing and, and the world that we're in. I, if 2020's taught us anything, it's that we're not in control as much as we think we are. Okay, so there's that. But then the worldview that I have is, okay, there's more. And I'm not gonna settle for just living in this VUCA world. Yeah. I get to I get to live in it in a way that makes a difference. You mentioned John, I'm led and I feel called. Mm -hmm. I think many of us feel led and we feel called and we feel like we're following our purpose or our passion or the reason yes. why we were born. And yet I sometimes in looking back on my own story, and I would imagine for our listeners looking back on theirs, they recognize it wasn't a calling, it was ego. It was a fool's errand that you felt, yeah, yeah I should do that. That's that's my calling. Yeah. How do you know, Greg, if it's your own desire and your own ego ultimately calling you to mm. take the next step forward in the wrong mm. direction mm. or in your worldview, your faith life, God's voice drawing you in to take yeah. the next step faithfully forward into a life that you uh, that's far bigger than the one you're currently living. Yeah, that's a great question because even as God made me, he gave me those desires and I think he wants me to lean into those desires. So it's really tricky. And you're right. If ego takes too big a, a, a role in this, then I just kind of steamroll people around me and in the name of my dream or my calling or my vision. And I simply do not believe that is, I, I just don't think that's the way we're wired. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the, I don't think that's how you make sig like significant differences in this world. I don't know anybody, John, on the back end of their life who feels like they lived a significant life when they left a pile of, of horrible stories uh, in their wake. Uh, I, I talk to men and women all the time who are maybe at that sort of 
end of their career, end of that part of their life. And if that's their story, I've never heard someone say, you know what, it was worth it. Every time I hear the regret of, I think I missed it. I think I missed it. So for me, part of what I try to do is to pay attention to that early on. But I will tell you straight up, I collaborate with other people and I let them speak into this. I, sometimes, again, for me, the way that I begin to sense my calling is in community. I'm going to bounce this off of people that I love and trust who have a similar worldview, who love me enough to tell me the truth. You see, sometimes, and my wife would be at the top of that list, but she's not the only one. Uh, who will just, they'll ask those curious questions. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And sometimes just them asking and me having to answer the question, I kind of start to clue in. And sometimes, sometimes they have to love me enough to go, are you sure that's about, like, is that the, is this more about you or is this about what you think you want to do in the world? And I got to pay attention to that. So, you know, for me, it's a, it's a in community kind of an answer, I think is what I would say. Well, you, you leave in some regards, one community to join another. I'm curious, Greg, the idea of being in corporate America, doing your thing, living yeah. a good life and playing occasionally the guitar on Sunday mornings. <laughs> That's a big jump from leaving that behind to saying, Man, yeah. you know what? I'm all in. Yeah. I'm all in with a hundred people at yeah. this little church that we're going to start yeah. up in St. Louis County. Yeah. Talk about that that call and that decision to leave behind one part of life and step fully into another. Yeah, it it really is. Uh, there's a there's a there's a quote by Martin Luther, uh, where in the middle of the Reformation he's feeling the heat, and he says, "This is Greg's paraphrase. Here I stand. I can do no other." Um, I really got to that point. Now I'm going to be really honest with you. Leading up to that point. Man, God and I had wrestled some things down. I was not, I, I was not happy being where I was. And so I had this, this growing sense of this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. What are we supposed to be doing? And so even though to some people, including my previous employer who had plans for me, um, it sounded crazy to him. But to me, it really was, I, I can do no other. I've got to take this step. And, and I, I talk to business leaders all the time, and particularly those who have that entrepreneurial bent. Um, they, they know exactly what I'm talking about. They, they've felt it before. It's like, I got to do this. I, I, everybody says I'm crazy, but this startup is, I got to do this. I, I'm going to pour into this. If I only did things that made sense in a world kind of checklist sort of way. Now we're back to that word faith. I'm not living a life of faith. Now I want to say this to you real quickly. I don't think faith is denial. It's not living in denial. I, I pay really close attention to the reality around me. But there are times that I feel like I'm being nudged to take another step yeah. into this difference-making significant life. And uh, ironically, so the book's called Never Settle. Ironically, those steps can be a little unsettling. But baby, do they lead to things. I mean, that's, that's where you begin to see life open up. The word settle. Yeah. It's one that immediately conjures ideas in the back of our minds or in the front of our minds. It's a more complicated word, though, than I first thought. So oh, describe yeah. some of the meanings of the word settle. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so early on in the book, you know, I mean, First of all, I admit that, that, uh, that it has these different connotations, but if you think about it, settle 
really comes down to this idea of rest. Uh, you begin to think of, for better or worse, you think of settlers and what do they do? Well, they settled. They eventually stopped moving. They were going somewhere and they stopped and they put roots down. And so there is this idea of putting roots down, but there's also this other part of it really, which is, um, and this is a more, this is a newer concept, but it's this idea of just stopping and settling and, and, and being satisfied with less than what you can do or what maybe you, you, you ought to be doing. And so for me, if you take a combination of a couple of these things and go, so this idea of settling, it is, it is certainly this notion of putting down roots, but I'm not just putting down roots. I'm putting down roots in a life, in a season of life that is just less than. I'm just satisfied for less than who I am, who I'm made to be, who the world needs me to be. I mean, I'm looking at this world right now and we need people all over the place who will not settle. I make this joke a couple of times in the book that this is not just a, you know, this is not the mantra of a, of a personal trainer or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But you hear that from coaches and personal trainers, never settle. So true. But I'm saying in every aspect of your life, don't settle for a less than loving marriage. Don't settle for a less than passionate uh, uh, approach to your work. Don't settle for a less than healthy corporate environment and, and, and culture. These are things that are worth leaning into. And if we've settled, we got to pull up our roots and get there. I'm just curious, man, because you're, you're bringing up notions that I think affect almost all of, all of us. Yeah. And maybe yeah. the better word is infect. It infects yeah. almost all of us. The majority of us have marriages we're not really proud of. The majority of us have relationships with our siblings we're not exactly thrilled about. The majority of us aren't exactly killing it professionally or spiritually or physically. So why, Greg? Why is there this disconnect between what we feel would allow us to flourish and thrive and really be alive? Yeah. And then this, oh man, this brokenness that we just accept settling. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. And the first one is, let's just say that the world around us right now is loud. Um, it is chaotic. You can use acronyms like VUCA or not, but it is, it, is, it is chaotic. It is broken. And I think that there are times that when we see this, there's a couple of things that we could do. One of them is we, uh, we play it safe because it's like, oh boy, I, I, phew, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to put my chin out there because I saw what happened to so-and-so, or I don't want to be the next person that's, that's, you know, that, that gets the blowback. I don't want to be that person that, you know, is trying to take a risk and make a difference and then have other people comment on them. I don't want to do that. So we play it safe. I think that also means that we start to really surround ourselves with people who are exactly like us. Without They think like us, they sound like us, they smell like us, they vote like us, they, they're us. And I love my friends. I love my friends. And who doesn't want to be around people that agree with you? <laughs> but if I settle for this homogenized, hermetically sealed bubble that I live in, I have, I'll stop growing. Yeah. That Petri dish isn't full of the kinds of things that are going to stretch me and give me different perspectives. So that's one thing. I think you played safe. I think the other thing is, and this happens to all of us, we can't live in a, in a fortress. We, we know we have to get out there in that world, at least a little bit, or at least we will again. Let's say that. Maybe we feel we're in a, you know, we're isolated right now. 
But when we get back out there, the other thing that I think we're tempted to do, John, is to, to just to blend in. It's just like we just try to, I think, I think one of the phrases I use in the book is that we walk around as ghosts of ourselves. We're there, we're in the world, but we're really not fully present. We're not really engaged and we're not fully, we're just not using all that who we are. Now, that gets to the last part. Why do we do that? Because I think we forget that we were made to make a difference. You know, I, I, I kind of goof on myself at one point in one of the early chapters where I say, this is, you know, this is a book about you making a difference. And I almost hesitate making that sentence because some of you are going to, you know, toss this book aside now. Um, or I think I said, give it to your aunt Ethel who has the world's largest <laughs> collection of self-help books. I think that's what I said. You said, yes. But the truth is, it's not just that, that, that we are to make a difference. The reason that's still Okay, here it is. The reason that that's still, uh, you still feel that inside, even in the middle of all of this, the reason the people, that you have listeners and readers who, one of the reasons they come to you, John, is because they just have this, this itching urge that they know there is more. They know, they know there is more. And there's this longing to actually live that fuller life. Well, I'm going to give you one more sentence there. The reason that's there is because you were made to make a difference. And when you begin to understand that, that the reason you've been given these gifts and these opportunities and even these challenges, and the, they come together in this beautiful mosaic that is you, it's you were made to make a difference. And when that light bulb starts to go off, I have a better chance of kind of making my way out of the fortress and into this world and living that fuller life. You, you say that you were made to make a difference with such conviction. Yeah. As if you know it. <laughs> and as, you, as if you know him. And as if you know where you came from and where you're going next. Yeah. What is it about your journey through life that has informed you to believe what you believe? And I know it's, John, you're asking a loaded question, bro. You're right. But it is, man, because there are many people tuning in right now who are lukewarm in their faith. There are many people who are bored or resentful or hate, hateful in their faith walk. There are many who have believed something completely different with you than you, with the same yeah, thing right. sure. you believe what you believe. So what is it about that? What is it about your experiences and what you've grown in that allows you to believe, Greg, sitting here as we're recording this podcast, that you were made for more? Yeah. Well, uh, you're right. That's a big loaded question, but I would say this. Um, it's because I began a journey where I was given permission pretty early on in my life to, to, to ask hard questions and to ask hard questions about faith. I'm afraid some of us really did grow up hearing, you can't ask that, you can't say that. And maybe you got, you know, maybe, maybe you got a correction on that. And so now you just stuff this whole thing. Um, there, there's, there's, a, there's a quote in the book by a, a researcher on the, in, in California who, uh, and, and she says, it's, it's, uh, it's not our doubts that are necessarily toxic. She said, it's the silence that's toxic. It's this idea that, okay, everybody has doubts. Everybody has questions. But when you, when you buy the lie, and I believe it's a lie, that you don't get to ask those questions, you don't get to seek out answers, and maybe just talk to somebody else and go, have you ever felt this way before? If you don't have permission to do that, you screw the lid on real tightly and it becomes toxic. 
And now you give up. You give up on this idea of, of there being a larger life. You give up on there being a God who cares about you. So I think I was given the gift by my dad in particular early on to say, it's okay. Ask the hard questions. And I mean hard questions. Like, why this? Why that? And then for me, it, be, it went further into, what about the Bible? Why would I even care about this thing? And he began to show me, it's okay to ask those questions. He also showed me, I'm not going to get all the answers. But I ended up with more answers than I thought. And I'm grateful to talk with people who are at different places on their journey. Yeah. Um, particularly when they're just boldly honest and just like, you know what? I don't like that at all. I think you're crazy. I don't believe it. But if we can then have a conversation, man, now we're talking. Now, now, now something can happen. Um, and along the way, I just have been shown in more than one case that God isn't finished with me. And I really, I really, I, this sounds crazy to say in 2020, I don't think he's finished with this world. So that's how I kind of live into this. There's, there's a lot there. You talk about your dad. Yeah. Hey, man, you wrote an, the book Never Settles, a beautiful book. It's a step-by-step -step way to go from lukewarm to on fire. And so it's, it's a beautiful book. Cannot recommend it enough. But halfway through, I think it's chapter six, you're talking about chain reaction. Yeah. And you lead off with the story of your dad. And, and I can tell that there's so much more to the story than you included in the story. And I was hoping to just hear a little bit more of it right now. To me, as I read this, though, your dad is one of the guys on your Mount Rushmore. He's one of the guys that you've looked right. up to, one of the guys who guided you forward, one of the guys who informed you of your faith and allowed you to question that faith and loved you when you moved away from that faith and was there for you when you came back to it. That's Just right. this incredible guy who you lose in a tragic way and on a very difficult day. So share as much of that story, Greg, as you're willing to share today. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Uh, that's a great thing to bring up right now because I can imagine that some of your listeners heard that last part and they're fighting the eye roll again because it's like, huh, really? That just almost sounds like a rah-rah speech. And, and um, it's not. Um, so on Thanksgiving Day, uh, just a few years ago, my dad died. And in the early part of that chapter, um, I, I talk about how uh, really I'm, I'm still sad. I still miss my dad. But there was, even on that day, even on that day, there was a sense of joy and relief. Two reasons. One, I believe he is with God. Two, he's no longer in pain. Yeah. And when I say pain, he, uh, when I was a little boy, we were hit by a drunk driver um, on a highway, bad accident. Uh, it just started a, uh, just this domino effect of injuries on my dad. There was a medical procedure that was done that did not go correctly that left him then with uh, a horribly chronic spinal pain and injury and, and nothing would relieve it. And uh, so we watched him really for I would say the, the vast majority of my life, both as a kid, teenager, and adult, dealing with chronic pain and wrestling with that pain in the context of his faith. And so I did too. And really, that's the whole thing where, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith, it's silence. We weren't silent about our doubts and our questions. We, we wrestled through that as a family. But then at the end... Um, 
it was just my brother and I in the, in the hospital room. It was in Texas. I'd flown down. We'd been told, uh, you know, this was it. And um, I think I mentioned in the book, it's, it's like any time that there is a moment where a great patriarch is, uh, it's the end of his days. And I just walked through this with a friend of mine recently. Uh, it seems like the whole family gathers together and uh, there's laughing and there's crying and there's praying and just a lot of storytelling, a lot of, hey, do you remember this? No, I didn't tell me that story. And it, feel like when we, it felt like when we were cried out, prayed out, talked out, uh, we were getting towards the end. He was in a lot of pain. He had actually uh, slipped into um, a, a, a state of consciousness where we weren't even really sure if he was paying attention to us anymore or could hear us anymore. Uh, it's Thanksgiving day. It's Thanksgiving morning. I sent my mom home and just said, just get some rest and you come back up here this afternoon. And I don't know if you've been around hospice nurses or not, but they just know what they're doing. They just, they just know before anybody else. And so I'm yeah. sitting there in this room in Arlington, Texas. And oh man, you're, you're, uh, this nurse comes up to me. I don't know her. I don't know her at all. And she says, would you mind if I cleaned up your dad and gave him a shave and I just want to care for him. I was like, are you kidding me? So I'm sitting there in the corner of the room and I'm watching her do this. I, I've never met her before in my life. Never saw her again. And, and, and she just cares for him, just tenderly cares for him. Uh, cleans him up. You know, he's not moving. Yeah. She's done with that. She puts the razor down, puts everything down, the comb down. And then she starts to, to pray and she starts to sing over him. This woman, I don't even know. She just sings over him and prays. And she turns around to me and says, it won't be long now. And she leaves. John, I'm not, I, I'm not kidding. I need to check the, the payroll of that hospital because I'll bet you she was an angel. But right after that, my brother and I started seeing these last signs of him being there. And we both said what we needed to say. We sang. We sang his favorite hymn. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We sing this song. The end of that song is, this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. When we were done singing, he was gone. Uh, he, we sang him into eternity. And the whole point of that chapter isn't for me to stir up everybody's emotions about their parents. The whole point of that chapter is, my dad left a legacy that quite honestly, John, I don't think he fully appreciated he set off so many chain reactions of love and goodness and grace, but because of his work as a psychologist, so much of that is, you know, it's bound by confidentiality. And so, you know, people don't come back and he doesn't get to talk to anybody about this. And I just remember when he passed, I remember thinking, now he knows, now he knows. I, this, the way I see it is that God said, okay, first of all, man, you're not in pain anymore. Second of all, Sit down, because I want to start connecting some dots for you. I want to show you a story that connected to a story that connected to a family that's healed. And John, as soon as I began to put that together, it was like God said to me, you know that's that way for everybody, right? And so this whole idea of setting off chain reactions became a, a really important part of the book. These little steps that we make, you don't have to be a Hall of Famer. You don't have to have thousands of people at your funeral. You don't have to be someone who, who has success by the world standards to set off chain reactions that will, I believe, send ripples through history in ways that we, I won't know this side of eternity. Mm. Uh, and for me, that is profoundly encouraging.
Well, that, that might preach. There, there might be something <laughs> in there that yeah. might happen on a Sunday morning down the line, this idea of what real significance and impact yeah. and chain reactions is all about. And Greg, you don't write about this. I don't think in, in your books that I've read, you don't talk about it often, but you give, I believe, and correct me when I'm wrong, 100% of the greatest donations that you receive on Christmas Day to charity. And first, yeah. am I getting the background story correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. When, first, when did you decide that um, the collections on the day that will generate by far for a small struggling church, that we are going to take the best of these fruits and give 100% of them to people who have far greater needs than us? Yeah. When did you make that decision? Yeah. Well, we're kind of almost right back to this idea of awe and this idea of just really having a, a sense that God had blessed us so as a church. And when we became aware of, for us, uh, it, you know, one of the things at Christmas principally, not exclusively, is the water crisis around the world. You know, the lack of clean drinking water is still the number one source of death. And children under the age of five are dying in a bunch of developing countries because they simply have no access to clean water. So there's a whole thing going on there. But um, for us, myself, the pastors, our board, we looked at each other and said, I think we're supposed to do this. Now, we, we actually have something that we participate in called Admin Conspiracy, where we, we lead our folks through something for four weeks, which is, you know, we want to worship fully. We don't want to spend as much money on gifts that nobody's going to use anyway. Like, in, you know, let's give more. So it's spend less and give more, which sounds like a contradiction. But the give more is give relationally. So the story I always tell with that is, uh, I remember when we first started this, uh, there was somebody, because this is now caught on around the country. Uh, there was a young man, I think in Oregon, who gave his dad a bag of coffee beans for a Christmas present. And you're going, oh, okay, I guess that's what he can afford. That's what it is. Mm -mm. There was a note attached to the beans and it said, dad, you are only allowed to drink this coffee with me. Hmm. And every time we have a cup of coffee, I want you to tell me a little bit more about how you became the man you became. It's the best gift that dad ever got, right? Okay, so there's relational giving there. And then the last part of it is this. With some of the money that we save from not over-consuming, we're all about gifts, but not over-consuming, maybe not buying Uncle Murray that sweater he was never gonna wear anyway. By saving some money, how about if we do this? How about if we pool it together and give it to the least of these? And so when we really began to consider that, John, that's when it, our board and myself came to the conclusion, well, we're gonna take a big risk here. Let's give it all. Let's just make it real clear to people who come to our Christmas Eve services. If you, unless you specifically say somewhere, this is going to something else. If you just give to our fund, all of that money is going to leave and it's going to, it's going to help the least of these around the world. And so we've been doing that now for 10 years and God has blessed us financially. I think partially because we're kind of hanging on to this very, with loose hands. It's, an, it's not ours anyway. And the stories that come back are just, they're just, they're amazing. And so for us, it's, we're in awe of what he has blessed us with. Let's get out there and do something with it. Well, it's, first of all, it's an amazing story. It's also another thing to cut a check uh, that requires generosity and kindness, no doubt. You not only cut it though, Greg, you go with it frequently and you've been yeah. all over the world and we could yeah. spend four more podcasts sharing <laughs> yeah. stories. But without going into tons of detail, what, what have you learned 
yeah. about life from the least among us. Yeah. Uh, first of all, there is an open-handed generosity in those corners of the world that I wish I had. I've, I've been on the receiving end of hospitality and I've been given meals that quite frankly, I know cost them more than, than any meal I've ever served to a guest. And that's as humbling as it gets uh, to be celebrated by another, to be genuinely welcomed into their home. And you're right, we don't have time, but you know, John, from, from, from Lebanon to India to all over Africa to Central America, to, it's just when somebody welcomes you into their home, like you are like the number one guest, like, man, we've been waiting all year for you. Uh, and maybe they just met me. You walk away from that going, what kind of hospitality do I express to people? What kind of just open-handed generosity and warmth do I, ex do I express to people that I really don't have a lot in common with? Mm. Because when this, you know, when this pastor from America shows up at any of those places, I'm, I'm different. Yeah. And yet these people love me. They treat me with, with, with grace and kindness. They welcome me. So those are the things I walk away with going, okay, God, how can I express that to people in my life? How can I make room in my life for people who are different from me? How can I honor them in that way? That's why there's a whole chapter on hospitality. It's really formed out of some of the experiences I've had around the world where people just have treated me uh, with such kindness. Greg, when you, when you deliver a sermon, when you share your heart and your faith with your church, talk about the process of deciding what, what it is you want to share and what you choose not to. And in the world that we live in, man, it's so divided. And yeah. you, are, you are an inch away from being canceled. And this <laughs> right. you built in the 10,000 who come happily every Sunday and bring, the, bring their kids. Right. One wrong word, man, and it's right. gone. It's right. gone. Yeah. So there, there's some angst, I think, for a pastor, an author, a radio host, whatever it may be, as they deliver their heart um, authentically, but also cautiously. So how do you, how do you balance that? Well, um, probably not well on some days, you know. I mean, uh, I, I know that, that we are in really fractious times, and, and, uh, and you're right. You know, you're always one sentence away from from certainly uh, having someone or some ones just go, that's it, I'm out. Yes. Uh, and, and I'm sure, by the way, John, I'm sure that happens, but I'm sure that has always happened. And I don't mean to sound, this is not a faux martyrdom kind of a thing here at all, but I take great comfort in seeing that people walked out on Jesus like mid-sentence and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm in good company. Um, which, by the way, doesn't mean that everything I'm saying has the exact same weight of Jesus at all. But I am saying sometimes when you speak truth, some people aren't going to like it. Uh, I do think that in these days, in these particular days that we are in, where things that we didn't even think were going to be like things we argued over. Like if, if I had told you in January, hey, John, there are going to be people screaming at each other over whether they should wear a mask or not. And I'm not really coming down right now on, you know, what we should do or not do with this pandemic. I'm in the camp of, I don't, it's a, it's a mystery to me. I don't know. Okay. But if you'd have told me we were going to argue about masks back in January, I just said, what are you, what? Yes. We are. 
So I think one of the things that I'm trying to do that I think we're trying to do is to, to, is to learn, to continue to learn, how do we have conversations uh, in such a way that where truth can be spoken and where we listen to each other. I think one of the things that's really frustrating and particularly with churches, but you could probably put other people in this category is when it becomes a one-way conversation. All right. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just talk about us pastors for a second. It feels like when somebody gets up in the bully pulpit, that it's just a one-way conversation and it's just, I'm going to deliver the goods and you got to, you got to, you got to deal with it. And there is a certain amount of that when the, with, when you're teaching in any form, when you're public speaking in any form, you do this, John, it's just, it's, there's a certain amount with that. But I hope along the way that what we're doing is we're trying to convey that we want to, we want to listen as well. That sounds so cliched, but I really mean that even in some of the difficult conversations in, uh, in recent months, uh, I've continued to sit down. We continue to sit down with our folks and say, okay, wait, okay. So help me with that. What, what, Help me understand why you're upset. What's this? What's this? Well, I thought you were da, 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 da. And in some cases, it's like, oh, boy, if that's not what I meant at all. Or, golly, we did not mean that. And if we gave you that impression, I'm sorry. And sometimes it's, no, I do feel like that's what we're supposed to be doing or that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. But I hope, I hope, John, that one of the things that I can do, that we can do, is to cultivate a, a, a culture of listening and it doesn't take the anxiety away. You started this question with, how do you know what to say and not say? Well, I, I hate to sound like a pastor again, but I, I pray my socks off. I just, it's like, God, what do you, you want to, here's a prayer I pray every week when I'm walking into whatever room or setting. God, protect those people from me. If, if I'm saying something that comes out of my heart that is, shouldn't be there, God, would you please protect those people from me? Because I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to abuse this privilege that you've given me. Um, and so I really do a lot of praying and a lot of thinking about that, but it is a sobering thought to go, okay, maybe you do get canceled. Maybe somebody does leave the church. Maybe they do threaten to dot, dot, dot. And uh, all I know, John, is if I'm going to live in fear, we're right back to settling. We're right back to, I might as well just crawl in my fortress, pull up the drawbridge and say, that's it, honey. We're just going to hunker down with our kids and, and a few friends until Jesus returns and, you know, good luck world. I can't do that. I can't do that. Um, so a lot of praying, a lot of listening to people. If they go, Hey, you could maybe say that a little differently. Try that this way. Oh, got it. Duly noted. That's my best answer. I don't know. It's probably not a really deep one, but no, that's perfect, man. You're choosing not to settle, not just to write a book about it, but to live it. And Greg, as we move toward not the finish line, the starting line, as we wrap up this podcast, yeah. we have questions that we tie all of our guests together. They're rapid fire questions. So here we go. Boom. Question number one for Pastor Greg Holder. What, what is the best book, the single best book you have ever read? Aside from the obvious one. Okay. So we won't say the Bible. Uh, well, but I do a favor for, for some of us who, uh, Tell me about the Bible. Is there a book within the Bible that you're like, hey, John, if you or your listeners wanted to go a little bit deeper, start here, man. Go, go right okay. here. Where I'll give would you they... two. I'll give you two. One is if you want to, if you want to just, if you want to get used to the voice of Jesus, pick one of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. 
if you're a person who really is interested in uh, prophecies and fulfilled promises and how all of this big story fits, read Matthew. If you're a nuts and bolts, I want the facts kind of a person, then you read Luke because this was a physician and he's, uh, he's, he's going to give you the detailed history of it. If you like movies that include car chases and jump cuts to the next scene, and you're not afraid of the supernatural, then read the Gospel of Mark, because that thing moves like this. And if you're one of those people who really enjoys a, a movie or a book that is a slower pace, kind of behind the scenes, longer conversations, then you read the book of John, because it was written by Jesus' best friend on the earth. And so I would say one of those four books, and just listen for the voice of Jesus. And... Um, and then the book of Philippians, which is a real easy read, four chapters, a guy by the name of Paul, who's just writing to some of his favorite people about, about things. And, and you just, you'll bump into phrases that you didn't even know were in the Bible, and they're in the book of Philippians. That would be that. I think there is a book uh, by uh, a man named Edwin Friedman, would be my other answer outside of the Bible. Um, and it's called A Fear of, uh, let me, I'm going to get it right. Uh, it's Ed Friedman's book on a, uh, I, th I think it's a, it's, it's the loss of nerve or the fear of, I really should look this up. It's really one of my favorite books. So you can tell, I don't even read the title. Um, but Ed Friedman was a, was a, uh, systems therapist and a rabbi. And I think it's called a loss of nerve. That's it. A loss of nerve. And, uh, he just talks in there about, how we as leaders live our lives fearfully and another way that we can live our lives more intentionally. And that book, as much as any book, has been really important to me as a leader. Uh, and and I, I think that's it. It's either a loss of nerve or a failure of nerve. So, yeah. Greg, what's one positive characteristic or a trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in Southern Illinois that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, wow. Um, I wish I was less self-conscious when I was a little boy, you know, you just, you just let it rip. And for all the reasons you mentioned earlier, then you kind of start to do the, the math. Can I, can I, should I, should I, I wish I was a little, a little freer with that. Freedom. If your home caught fire and your children and your granddaughter Kennedy are out safe, yes. your pets are all out safe, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, anything, what yeah. would you come racing back out of that burning house with? Yeah, well, uh, trick question, because it's two little books, two books that are stacked right there together, and they're books from my daughters. Uh, when they went to college, we made a decision. One of the gifts that I gave was uh, to, to Alex and then to Tori was, here's a journal and I'm keeping a journal and this whole year you're away at school. Let's just, let's just keep track of how desperately we miss each other and what our lives are like. And so then that next Christmas, I got both of the first one and then the other. And so, yeah, get out of my way. Those are priceless. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench with anybody on a gorgeous day, who would you want to have that nice long conversation with? Yeah. Are they alive or dead? Alive or dead, your choice, anybody. Yeah, C.S. Lewis probably. What's your first question for C.S. Lewis? Um, well, the first question would be, uh, tell me about your writing 
process? Tell me how you get these things down onto paper so prolifically. Dude, so taking notes on Never Settle, one of the things I wrote down is your daughters were incredibly lucky to have you, not only as their dad, but you reading to them C.S. Lewis every night oh. and doing the voices and the, yeah. the great one and his death and then mm. him showing back up another picture again. And I can just imagine these little girls mm. <sighs> mm. learning truth from C.S. Lewis as shared by their dad. What a gift. Yeah, well, it was a gift to me too, John. I mean, I hope I can pay that on the pages. But for me, I learned more than they did. And I will never forget that, ever. What's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, lean into the gifts that you have and quit trying to be somebody you're not. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Trust him sooner <laughs> and jump into the story with both feet. Greg Holder, a man who has trusted him fully and is completely jumped in with both feet. It has mm -hmm. been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? He followed Jesus fully and loved his friends with all his heart. Greg Older, thank you for loving Jesus fully, for loving your friends with all of your heart, and for teaching us all about the power of relationship. Mm. That's, at the end of the day, that's what you have taught me, and you mm. have uh, done it beautifully, man. So I am mm. grateful for you, for your work, for your impact, and for your time. Oh, My friends, man. that is Greg Holder. Wow. He is author of a book called Never Settle. Go get yours right now. You will be grateful that you did. My name is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired and never settle. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies builds communities with the power of one. Six distinct brands come together as one single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, wireless, logistics, and development solutions. Their true differentiator is building people within communities through their world-class culture focused on safety, education, community service, wellness, and inclusion, all using their unique strategic process to achieve results on purpose, lovingly called the Keeley Way. Keeley Companies is beyond proud to sponsor the Live Inspired podcast and aligns with a vision of making the world a better place.